0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where China analyst and author Mark O'Neill takes me out of Hong Kong on a journey to Taiwan to talk about the life and work of the Taiwanese Buddhist nun, Master Cheng Yen, who was born in 1937. At 80 years old, she heads the NGO, the Juji Foundation, which has 10 million followers and operates with education and health projects in 50 countries.
1: Well, it was a great piece of good fortune. An American friend of mine had been offered a very nice contract to write a book about them. Everything was ready. All the details had been signed. He got a very good package in the contract. But at the last minute, he decided, because his son had autism that he had to leave Hong Kong, go back to the United States, and he couldn't fulfill the contract. He was extremely embarrassed because he'd done all the negotiations. So he met me and he said, would you like to do it? So I was working in Shanghai at that time. So I said, well, I I know nothing about this lady and her movement, so can I visit and see? So we went from Shanghai to Hualien in eastern Taiwan. In those days, there was no direct flights. You had to come via Macau.
0: So when are we talking?
1: 2006... So I went to Hualien, which is the eastern side of, of Taiwan, and I was, went to their headquarters, which is a very modest building overlooking the Pacific, and um, I was taken in and I met this lady, Master Zheng Yen, who is a Buddhist nun, and I met her for about ten minutes. And uh, that t- ten minutes was quite enough to convince me that I should give up my excellent job <laughs> <in> Shanghai <laughs> with a nice salary because this was a chance to meet her and her followers and she was clearly an extraordinary person and this chance doesn't come to us often in a lifetime. Maybe it only comes once. So, yes, I resigned from my job and I took up the project which lasted one year. So I spent a year writing about her, her history and this foundation she set up. And so a year later the book was published.
0: Now, I've just been looking at photographs of uh, Master uh, Zheng Yen, and I, you know, the fact that she's born in 1937, so she's the same age as my father, and she doesn't look anywhere near 80.
1: When you meet her, you can't guess how old she is. I think it's because she has an enormous sense of mission. She knows exactly why she's alive, what she's doing. She knows that her disciples very much depend on her. Her life is extremely valuable. Also, she has a very disciplined life. She's never taken a plane. She's never left Taiwan. She has a very rigid schedule every day. She's a vegetarian. She doesn't eat very much. So her life is very well regulated. Everyone hopes that she lives for many, many years. She was
0: born in 1937. So where was she born? And what were the circumstances uh, politically and, and in terms of war around that time?
1: Well, she was the fifth child of a button maker. She was born in Shui, which is in western Taiwan. In 1937, remember, Taiwan is a Japanese colony. So Formosa. Formosa, yes. So the family was poor. And at an early age, she was given to the brother of her father who was married but had no children. So she was adopted by her uncle and aunt.
0: Now, that wasn't such an irregular practice, was it?
1: Oh, no, it was very widespread because, uh, you know, birth control was limited in those days. So some families had many children and then other families had no children. So, no, it was quite commonplace. Of course, this was World War II. Now, Taiwan was not affected as much as mainland China. But there were bombing of some Taiwan cities by the Americans, and she witnessed this, and of course, as a child, to witness war and bombing and death and injuries is, is a traumatic thing. So that started her on her sort of spiritual journey.
0: So she grows up with the the uncle and aunt. So she was the uh, daughter of a button maker, and, and what did the uncle and aunt do?
1: Well... Um, as I think often happens, after adopting her, they then had their own children. So, in fact, her, her new family was quite large, but she was the eldest one. So she was very much a responsible elder sister. And, for example, her brother was very sick, and she nursed him for eight months in the hospital. And her father, that's her adopted father, after the war, he started to manage s- cinemas, which was a good business. So the family became much better off than before, and she was helping him run the cinemas, and then one day a blood vessel in his brain burst, and he fell on the floor, and she was there. And she didn't quite know what to do. Well, I think none of us would know what to do. She got help, and he was taken to hospital, but unfortunately he passed away. So this was the second big experience in her life that shocked her, the unpredictability of life. Did she do all she could have done? If she'd behaved differently, could she have saved him? We never know. So she began to to reconsider what she should do in in life and decided to become a nun. And she ran away to become a nun. Anyway, her mother found where she'd gone, went there and got her back. So then she ran away a second time, and this time she was successful. And she um, trained herself as a nun, and then she had a mentor, um, and she studied under him. And so she became a nun.
0: That's quite a decision to make as a a young woman. What would the influences of, you know, religion around her have been? Did she come from a Buddhist family?
1: Well, I had the great good fortune to interview her mother, who was then 92.
0: Her adopted mother.
1: Mm, who was 92, and I was able to ask all these questions. And her mother said that by the time she was a teenager, the family was quite prosperous, but the... Opportunities for women in Taiwan then were extremely limited. She could become a teacher or become a nurse, but most professions were, were not open to women then. So the best choice was to find a nice husband, a you know, well-off husband, and marry your daughter to the husband. So she said that's what she was thinking about. That's what most women in her situation would have done. But she said, ''I realised my daughter was different to other daughters.'' and had a very strong will of her own and didn't wish this route. So eventually I agreed to this. Initially she didn't agree to it. No, I would say the family itself was not particularly religious. It was Master Zhengian herself who discovered it and bought Buddhist literature, met nuns and met the mentor and herself studied and learnt all this.
0: I'm talking with... China analyst and author, Mark O'Neill, about uh, Master Jiang Yan, who later, I mean, we're talking about her early years. Later on, she, after studying under these various masters, she then uh, would create her own foundation. And this was also after she came into contact uh, with some Catholics.
1: Yeah, it was 1966 is the key year. Two things happened. She went to this hospital and she saw on the ground blood on the floor, and she asked where the blood came from, and it was from an Aboriginal lady who was pregnant and went to the hospital, but didn't have the money for the treatment to give birth. So the Aboriginal lady was taken home and unfortunately died. And this shocked Master Zhengian very much, that someone, just because they had no money, couldn't get the medical treatment. Then the next thing that happened was three Catholic nuns, Chinese Catholic nuns, came to visit her, and she was living at this time in a very small temple. And they said, uh, what do you Buddhists do? You you just spend all the time uh, grieving about the human condition and how much suffering there is, but what do you do to help people? We Catholics, we build schools, hospitals, orphanages, old people's homes, you know. What do you do? And this very much shocked Master Zheng Yan, because... Of course, what the Catholics said was true. Whilst the Buddhist scripture is extremely profound and, and tells us a lot about the human condition, it didn't at that time have this aspect of uh, engagement in the human society. So these two events spurred her to set up the tzu Foundation, which was born in May 1966. And it was born as an NGO was not born as a way to proselytize Buddhism, to convert people to Buddhism. It was to help those who needed help. So this would be the poor, the sick, the handicapped, the people in need. And that's why she set it up in Hualien, which is eastern Taiwan. It's the poorest part of the island. It's the island with the largest number of aboriginals. These were the original inhabitants of Taiwan, and they were driven away by the Han settlers. So they inhabited mountain areas without much land and not good conditions. So she set it up on purpose there because there was a lot of need. So she started with just 30 housewives and each day they would put 50 cents, Taiwan cents, in a bamboo piece to save money. And she insisted they do it every day because you must remind yourself each day that you have this goodness in you. And they said, well, why why don't we do it once a week or once a month? And she said, no, because you've got to, every day you must remind yourself of this. So that's how it started. So in the early years, they would use this money to visit elderly people, handicapped people, um, people living on their own, and would help them financially and try and get their lives back on track.
0: So was she a one-man band, or did she start getting a whole sort of team of people together?
1: Well, in the beginning, she yes, well, I, I shouldn't say one well, my man, but the number of followers was small. Now, remember, Taiwan is ma- under martial law at this time. So the government is, has very strict regulations on, on, on sort of assembly and g- gatherings of people and so on. So in the first 20 years, it grew quite slowly. The government didn't ban such foundations, but uh, the conditions didn't really exist to become a mass movement. So the first major... Project she did was 1986. She built a big general hospital in Hualien. This is a very interesting story, too, because when she proposed the idea, everybody said it's impossible. A hospital is extremely expensive. You've got to buy the land, you've got to build the building, you've got to buy a lot of expensive equipment, and you've got to hire people, doctors and nurses, to work there. And nobody wants to work in Hualien because it's a rather remote place. But uh, she said, no, I believe in the goodness of people that people will donate money and people will be willing to work here. So they'd started the fundraising procedure. And then a Japanese businessman arrived. And as you know, many Japanese have great fondness for Taiwan because when they lived there before forty-five, they had a very good experience, they had very good relations with Taiwanese people. So this particular businessman had lived in Hualien before and said to her, I will give you the entire cost of the project. Here, here it is. So all the followers were overjoyed. Okay, we've now got the money. We can start. We don't have to go on trying to raise money from other people. And Master Ren refused it. She said that if we do that, then it's the hospital becomes his project because he's financed all of it. So very politely, she refused the donation and said to her followers, "No, you've got to go on raising money." And they were <laughs> completely disheartened and incomprehensive about what this. But, you see, her idea was that by having a project, you you draw people in. So this was her idea. So her followers in Huali and Taipei and other places, they did more fundraising, uh, charity auctions and so on. So gradually they raised the money and they built it. But by then, you see, it involved hundreds, thousands of people who, were, who had donated money or had been involved in these activities. And it was extremely difficult to get staff... To go there. Initially, teachers came from Taipei, but sort of two days a week, in, in addition to their jobs in Taipei. But gradually, you know, the thing took off. And of course, it was very useful because Hualien was a place which didn't have quality care of this, of this kind. So well, now they have six hospitals in Taiwan. And some of them are in places like Hualien where the, 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 there isn't a good hospital.
0: It's difficult, I think, sometimes to picture life 50 years ago, um, considering you know, what we have in terms of public health here in Hong Kong.
1: Well, Hualien did have two hospitals at that time. It had a public, small public one, and it had a Mennonite one built by the Mennonite uh, Church. So th- there were facilities available, but they weren't adequate. And Hualien is a big county. There's a big population. So of course there was much, there was need for a much bigger facility. And she had realised that, you know, poverty and health, of course, are are completely interconnected. So, so many people were poor because they couldn't afford the medical treatment that they needed. So they weren't able to recover properly and weren't able to get a proper job and get a proper wage. Now, one thing I want to say is in the Hualien Hospital, as in all the hospitals, they have very wide use of volunteers. And this is a a very distinctive feature of all the Tsuji hospitals. Because when you enter, immediately someone will come over to you and say, hello, what kind of treatment are you looking for? Can I help you with the registration? And this is very much part of the the, the ethic that... uh, they should not only be nurses and doctors there, but there should be people who help you with your all the practical matters, uh, encourage you emotionally and spiritually. Um, they'll contact your family if you need it. Do you want books to be bought, newspapers to be bought? Do you want your cousin George to come with his guitar and play to you? And, I mean, that's what they do. They do what the doctors and nurses don't do. And they, they are widespread in all the hospitals... And now there is a queue to do this. So people come from Taipei and they spend a week in Hualien as a volunteer. And then they go back to Taipei to their normal jobs. And then the next week someone else comes. And there's a queue for this. So um, this is one of the great discoveries of Master Yen that she has found this desire among people to help others, which was there before, but was not utilised, or there was no way for it to be utilised. And she has made this one of the main pillars of her foundation.
0: You remarked how in 1966 there were two watershed moments for her, or events. One was meeting with Catholics and finding out what they did in terms of social provisions. But the other was the tragedy of the Aboriginal woman who was bleeding in a hospital was taken home. Uh, as a pregnant woman, and would die later, uh, which highlighted for Master Cheng Yen the situation uh, of Aboriginal people in Taiwan these days. You know, as you you remarked, you know that, um, and this is not different to other areas uh, of Greater China. That um, you know, you had the hand come in, and the local population is then dispersed to the hills. What's the situation for Aboriginal Taiwanese these days?
1: Well, I, I'm afraid it's quite a sad story. I mean, we better not speak about the Han Chinese. We should speak about ourselves, the whites, because we did the same in North America, <laughs> Australia, <laughs> South Africa. South America, we also displaced the local people. So the, the average income of aboriginals is below that of uh, the Han people. As I say, the areas where they live are not the best areas. They don't have the... As much good arable land to work, um, there is free schools and free education for them, but their educational level is not as high as the Han. Of course, they have to learn Mandarin Chinese and learn the characters in order to, to avail themselves of this education and levels of uh, alcoholism and drug addiction are higher than the general population. So what she has done is address these issues as much as possible so in Whaley and she set up this nursing college to provide nurses for the hospital and she allows aboriginals to have special treatment. I, I think their, wa- their fees are waived, I think. Anyway, they have other encouragements to go there and she wants to give aboriginal ladies a very clear choice, a very good career to have and encourage them to come rather than stay you know, in a mountain village where there's very little e- economic prospects. And then they do a lot of medical clinics, free medical clinics. And this means the doctors and the nurses leave the hospital in Hualien and then they drive up the mountains and then they provide clinics in the villages where the aboriginals live. And this is a very important service because some of them are Unable to travel, some of them don't have cars. She's very active in addressing the Aboriginal situation.
0: I'm talking to China analyst and author Mark O'Neill about the life of Master Chiang Yen. Uh, she's now 80 um, and began as a Buddhist nun, born in 1937. And Mark actually wrote the book Tsuchi Serving with Compassion. Not only did then Master Chen Yen concentrate on Taiwan, she also then started to look at what her foundation could do internationally.
1: The date you must remember is 1987 July. President Jiang Jingguo abolished martial law. And after that, Taiwan civil society took off. And not only the Tsuchi Foundation, but many other Buddhist, Christian, scholarly associations, they, they all then flourished because the constraints on them were taken away. So the number of her members greatly increased and um, there was more uh, donations, so they had much more money. And there were Suji members outside of Taiwan too, I mean, among the Taiwan diaspora. So 1991 was the first overseas aid program, which was in Bangladesh, and there they donated money. But Master believes that aid should not be in this form because that only benefits the, the victim. She thinks that aid must be done hand-to-hand. The, the, the volunteer must give the aid directly to the person. She believes this is a, a two-way process. It's not me giving rice to a Kashmiri or, or a Vietnamese and they being happy to receive the rice. No, it's a two-way process. I learn from the process. I receive as much benefit from the process as the person receiving the aid. So, when they donate the aid, they must bow to the person and thank them for receiving the aid. And uh, it, it took me some time to grasp what, what was the purpose of this. But after interviewing many of the volunteers, I learned that they said, I gained more than the person who received it. So, I said, Well, in what way? And they said, Well, I'm at home. I, I row with my wife, I have bad relations with my children, I'm worried about my mortgage payments, my car's broken down. You know, everyone has a lot of worries. <laughs> but, but when I go to the scene of a serious flood and I meet someone whose home has been washed away and they have nothing to eat and I give them a bag of rice and some new clothes, I, begin, I then realise my situation, that I'm extremely blessed and my worries have, have really of have no consequence. So this is the idea of her, of Master in that this this is the process that must take place. So from 1991, we start this um, overseas aid program. So initially, it was Taiwanese sent from Taiwan by air in planes with the goods that they were delivered. But of course, this is not a model you can sustain a long, for a long time. So... What then happens is people in all these affected countries they they themselves become volunteers, so in many cases it 's the victims who see what the foundation 's doing. they then join and become volunteers, so the next time a disaster happens in that country, they then take part so this is the model she wants to 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 spread so you start initially with Taiwan visitors from Taiwan or Taiwan people who were living there, business people, scholars or whatever. But then you, it becomes a local initiative and the volunteers are very largely local people. So for me, the most memorable visit was to South Africa and they have about 5,000 members there. So we went to Durban and we met these members. And initially, it was just one man, a Taiwanese who was in South Africa selling computers during the time of apartheid. Do you remember? There were all sorts of sanctions against South Africa and Taiwan had good relations with South Africa. So he made a fortune from selling computers because there were no other computers available. But this man had a conversion that the aim of his life should not be to amass a huge amount of money from selling computers and he joined the foundation and he started to set up the, the, the foundation there. So most of the members are Zulu women So we spent three days with these ladies. The Durban area, KwaZulu Natal, is the worst place in the world for AIDS. So we spent all the three days going to visit places where there were people who had died of AIDS. We visited the families left behind, or we visited the people who had AIDS. And these ladies went to visit them and did what they could to help them. And there were places where the AIDS orphans were, and they would go there and give them lunch and entertain them. And this was a very powerful experience, especially because these were black African women. They were not Buddhist. They had no connection to Taiwan. There was no link between them and Master Zhang But actually, when you were there and you spoke to them and you saw what they were doing, you could see there was a very intimate link between them. And one day we went to this orphanage, we handed out the lunch to the AIDS orphans and then the volunteers were sitting down having a rest and I interviewed one of them and she was called Gladys Neymar and she's an extremely eloquent lady and she herself has, has suffered greatly from AIDS because it's taken members of her own family and I asked her to explain what they were doing and she said well You know, we're very inspired by this nun in Taiwan and we we want to to do what she advises us to do. And Gladys is a devout Protestant and her father was a pastor. And she said to me, when I die, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to Hualien. I, I think that explains it very well, that particular quote. So the next time I met Master Zheng Yan, I'm pleased to say I recounted that story. And um, she had a smile just like you have.
0: What is she like?
1: She's very uh, quiet. She's soft-spoken. Her time is very precious. There's no small talk. Every moment must be well used. It's not someone you can sit and chat about uh, the World Series or the Premier League or, you know, do you like ice in your whiskey? I mean, You see what I mean? There's none of that. So if you have a meeting with her, it has to be very well planned in advance and there has to be something to discuss. And this is how her time is allocated. You know, she's now the head of this global movement. There's 10 million members, uh, more than 50 countries.
0: With the rise of President Xi Jinping and China, it's, you know, obviously moving towards being the next
1: world superpower
0: there's an increased ostracization of taiwan fewer countries are now showing their allegiance to taiwan they're all switching over to beijing so in some terms is master Chen yen and the juji foundation a form of taiwan soft power
1: well she would never speak in this way and she gave recent interview to the asia week and i just read it this morning just before i came And the interviewer said, look, what is your role in cross-straits relations? I mean, that's an obvious question for a journalist to ask. And she absolutely didn't answer it. She said, our strength is very weak. We must just carry out our mission. She avoids any reference to politics or uh, proselytization and... The foundation is very active in China. They have many projects in China. They have many members in China. They have a branch in Suzhou, an official branch, which was approved by the PRC government. But they are very, very low-key about what they do. And as I understand, there's an agreement with Beijing not to publicize what they do in the mainland. I would say, yes, as Taiwan shrinks diplomatically... What is Taiwan abroad? Well, it's obviously its, it's culture, its music, its books, it, its individuals, <clears throat> its business people, and of course, Suji and other religious organizations that are very active outside of Taiwan. So I would say, yes, it's, it's part of Taiwan's soft power and a very admirable aspect of that soft power. But she would never use this kind of phrase and she would avoid being dragged into this kind of debate.
0: Your grandfather was a missionary in China and spent his life there. Uh, when, you go, when you were given this task uh, to uh, write a book about the Judy Foundation and also to look at the life of Master Cheng Yen, did you learn more about Buddhism during that period?
1: Well, um, of course, but uh, there is this great difference between Master Zheng and Grandfather and the other missionaries because Grandfather's f- number one aim, of course, was to convert people, to bring them into the Christian church. Now, Master Zheng Yen does not have this objective. She insists that her members abroad, especially in countries that are not Buddhist, must be very careful to say, we are not here to proselytize you, we are here to build a school, build a house, do a socially useful project. We're not here to try to convert you. And the result is that they have many members uh, who are Muslims, who are Christians, who are atheists, who are agnostic, who join because they want to take part in this in this very eff- effective NGO.
0: My thanks to China analyst and author Mark O'Neill, talking there on the life of Master Cheng Yen and the Chuji Foundation. Next week's programme is a musical one as I join heritage man Heide Kickerboy to hear about how folk songs of a Lantau village are being preserved. And we celebrate 45 years of Ned Kelly's last stand. So thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.